We find our text today in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, where Paul makes a circle back and he's talking about elders again. If you're new to our church, the way that we approach our sermons is we start at the beginning of a book of the Bible, we work our way through. So we've been in 1 Timothy for a while, and he's been talking about how the church in Ephesus, where Timothy was a pastor, how the church should be organized and what it should look like. And today, Paul, in our text, is talking about leadership. He's talking about elders. And it's a different type of elders than we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about elders as people who are more advanced in age. This week, when Paul is talking about elders, he's talking about the idea and the concept of pastors. At our church, we hold those two words to be uh, synonyms. If you are a pastor, you are an elder. If you're an elder, you're a pastor. We, We don't see a distinction between those two roles. And I do think it is timely for us to talk about this because I think leadership within the church has fallen on some pretty hard times. And I think back in my own life as I've heard events and news stories about this, we could go all the way back to 2002, more than two decades ago, when the news broke with a big scandal within the Catholic Church of of abuse. And of course, Protestants thought, well, that would never happen in the Protestant world. But just a couple years ago, within the Southern Baptist denomination, we saw another abuse scandal break out. And it seems that every few months, there's a new story hitting, hitting the press about a young evangelical leader who shot up really fast, was really influential, falling into sin and falling into disgrace. And I think when it comes to leadership in the church, oftentimes we find ourselves in one or two camps. On one side, we might be people who are so extremely loyal that we, 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 uh, we don't see, and we, how do I put this? We can be so loyal we don't see the faults in our leaders. But I think there's this other side that we might fall on. And it very well might be that some of you have been hurt or harmed by leadership in the church, and you've gotten to a point in your life where you're suspicious of the church and you're suspicious of any authority within the church. And what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is Paul taking both of those issues and coming up with a balanced approach, where on one hand, he says, we honor elders and pastors, but on the other hand, he warns them and he holds them accountable. So let's look at those two aspects in this text. First of all, let's talk about what Paul says about honoring elders. Is is my mic loud and echoey? Nope. All right. It's just what I'm hearing. Okay. All right. So honoring elders. This is one of those passages that I really didn't want to teach on that much, right? It kind of feels a little awkward uh, as one of the elders in the church to talk about what Paul says about honoring elders. But it's the word of the Lord. So let's go ahead and read what Paul says about honoring elders in verses 17 and 18. He said that elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. What Paul says about elders is that elders ought to be honored. And we have to ask the question of why ought 
elders be held in a position of honor. And the author of Hebrews, I think, lays it out very quickly why elders in the church and why pastors in the church uh, are worthy of honor. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. He explains why pastors and elders are people who are worthy of honor. It's because they keep watch over your souls. Oftentimes when we think of someone keeping watch over our souls, the picture in our head has more to do with like a cat that's ready to pounce on its prey. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen a cat getting ready? We have a cat... um, her, before we got her, the, the previous owners called her killer because uh, she pounced on everything. As a kitten, I love this cat because my little toddler children would run across the yard and the cat would like jump on them. It's, it's amazing. But I still watch, I lo- still love to watch this cat like operate in our backyard because a bird will fly down and the cat sees and she kind of crouches down and she, she just kind of creeps forward until all of a sudden in a burst of energy, she's like on the bird. It's so fun to watch. A little sad, but so fun to watch. Um, it's like the Nature Channel, right? Uh, and oftentimes when we talk about pastors keeping watch over our souls, that's the picture we get in our head. That there is a group of people within the church who are out there with a keen eye watching and waiting for someone to slip up. And so when they do slip up and they do sin, they can pounce on them like a cat pouncing on its prey. But when we read the Bible, that's not how the Bible portrays keep watch over their souls. The Bible doesn't use the example of a cat catching a bird, but rather using a shepherd watching over his sheep. One of my favorite shows, I think I might mention this before, is a BBC television show called Tudor Monastery Farm. I know it sounds really exciting. But it follows these three historians as they live life as they, as they did hundreds of years ago on a Tudor monastery farm. And a series of these episodes had to do with how they had to take care of their sheep. In our modern sensibilities, you think, all right, you have land, you get a fence, you throw sheep out there and you're done. Right? And the sheep take care of business. They eat, they grow wool, they have lambs. Easy. But it wasn't as easy as that. Because to be a good shepherd and to care and watch over this flock... It took an amazing amount of, of, of effort because sheep were high maintenance. They would have to go out and for every sheep in their flock, they'd have to pick up every hoof of the sheep to make sure there wasn't any hoof rot. They would then have to look at the skin and pull the wool apart to make sure there was no infection on the skin. And if they were about to lamb, if they're about to give birth to their lambs, They wouldn't just say, all right, well, in the morning we'll have lambs, but they actually had to sleep out in the fields in case any of the ewes needed help in delivery. They then had to shear the sheep. They would also have to take the sheep from one paddock to another paddock. And the amount of work, the amount of care, the amount of attention that was needed to take care of these sheep was amazing. And when the Bible talks about how the leaders of God's people should watch over the members in their church, that's the image, that's the metaphor that Scripture uses as a shepherd watching over sheep. Pastors, 
When they keep watch over a congregation, it's not with a suspicious eye, but is with a heart full of concern, wanting the best for people. This is one of the reasons why in a church like ours, it, it, it gets, I, f- I feel like it gets a little weighty. Whenever we were a church plant three and a half, almost four years ago, and there were 30 of us, and we had three elders, it's like, all right, man, 10 people per elder, we, we, we can keep watch. Uh, but then as the church began to grow, keeping watch became more difficult. Why? Because there's more souls. There's more danger. There's more, there, there's more wheels spinning. So one of the things I'd ask for you is as our church continues to grow, I would ask that you pray for our elders. We currently have three elders. It's myself, it's Neil Grogan, and, and Jeremiah Walker, who was in the first service. But pray for your elders. Why? Because Scripture says that their job, our job, is to keep watch over souls. But the author of Hebrews says not just to keep watch over your souls, but they also said that they will have to keep watch over souls as those who will give an account. That every elder who pastors a church, every elder that leads a church, will have to give an account before God of how they cared for the souls under their care. That is no light thing. And that's one of the reasons why I would ask you not only, not only to pray for your elders, but man, let's, let's keep our eyes open for other men who are qualified and godly, who can rise to that position to take on more of that load, to take more on more of that work. But also I would ask you this, to make sure we are watching out for one another. The way a church operates is it does have elders who keep watch over, over the members, uh, giving care, giving concern, watching out for danger. But there's also this idea that we care for one another. Let us be a church that is not full of, of islands, each person individually on their own, living their Christian walk, and they come here occasionally but let's be a church where, where we are one body. That when you come, there are people here who know you. They know your story. They know your struggles. Why? Because no one else can keep watch over you if you are just this independent agent. We are called to be one body. And it's not just the elders that care for the congregation, but it's a congregation that cares for one another as well. Elders are called to lead in the church, and Paul says they are worthy of honor because they keep watch over souls. But of course, in verse 17, he says something else. He says, elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his ages. <clears throat> what is Paul saying here? What Paul is saying in this text is that there are some pastors, some elders, who spend a majority of their time in the gospel ministry. And if that majority of time takes up their time for another occupation, then the pastors ought to be paid. Look at how he defends this. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 6, where he says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. 
What's this picture he's making? Whenever the Israelites would gather up their grain, they'd have to thresh it. And so they might have an ox walk on the grains and break it out of the hole. And what they were saying is you don't put a muzzle on the ox while it's working. That if it's putting the work in to make the flour, to make the grain, then allow it to eat some as it goes along. Probably a modern example is is something like this. Does anyone begrudge the baker when they eat the raw dough? No. If they're making the cookie, if they're making the cake, let them taste it. Or, Or if they're cooking soup on the stove, no one begrudges the cook if they take a spoon of the soup to taste it. We only begrudge them if they put the spoon back in, right? So, uh, but, but we don't begrudge them. And that's the point that Paul is making, that if somebody is spending their time and giving of their life in and, and gospel ministry and preaching and keeping watch, then it's, then it's good for them also to be paid by the church. Paul talks about this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as well. And he kind of goes into more detail And in fact, he even goes into more specificity and he says this, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Now, once again, this is an awkward text for me to preach as your pastor, but the scripture is clear that pastors who spend the majority of their time in the gospel ministry should be paid. Notice he does not say how much. But what scripture does say in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that elders, one of the qualifications for an elder is that they should not be greedy. So we have to carefully balance that out. Paul says that preachers, that elders, pastors that work hard in the gospel ministry should also be paid. This first few verses talk about honoring Elders and pastors. And I would just say as one of the elders and pastors of this church that you do a fabulous job at this. We feel loved. We feel honored. And I can speak for the whole elder board where we say it is a delight to be a part of this church. I don't know if any of us has been a part of a body that is this loving, that is this kind, that is this healthy. And we we are grateful for it. If you have been hurt by churches, you have a tendency, and there is the tendency, to distrust all authority, to distrust all leadership. And I think what Paul is telling us in this passage is don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That just because you've been hurt in the past doesn't mean you can never give your trust again to an elder or a pastor. Just because you've been in the church doesn't mean you should reject the church. But we also see Paul in this text giving us a balance. On one hand, he's saying, yes, honor your elders and pastors. But on the other hand, we also see him warning elders and pastors. Let's look at verses 19 uh, and, and a few verses after that. He says, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. Notice what Paul is talking about here. The first thing I see in these verses in 19 and 20 is this plain and biblical truth that pastors and elders sin. 
They make mistakes. We have to realize that whatever leadership capacity you're in, whether it's spiritual leadership in the church or leadership in the military or in the school or in the business, that leaders make mistakes. They oftentimes even sin. So what happens when a leader sins? What happens when a pastor sins? Is there any accountability? And scripture says, yes, pastors and elders need to be held accountable. We see this in verses 19 and 20. He says, don't accept the accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. When we just read that on its own, we might get the idea and feeling that there has to be more evidence against the elder. But when we look at scripture, what we find is that's not the case. That elders and everyone else are held to the same standard. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony or two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention to the church, let him be like a Gentile or a tax collector for you. What Jesus was laying out for us was what we call church discipline. That whenever one believer sins against another believer, there is a process that we go through to try to reach repentance and reconciliation. That if somebody sins against you, the first step is that you go to them personally and you say, I have been wounded, I have been sinned against, we need to work this out. But if the person who hurts you, who sinned against you, will not listen to you, Jesus in chapter 18 of Matthew says the next step is you take two or three witnesses to work out the facts. When Paul talks about elders being held accountable, he uses the same standard. He says, if an elder or pastor sins against you, you need to confirm it by two or three witnesses. Just what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. They're held to the same standard. Now, one of the things we need to realize when we talk about church discipline, oftentimes that sounds strange to us because we haven't really done that in the American church for a while. But we have to realize that church discipline has two purposes. One purpose is the repentance of the sinner. Whether it be an elder or a congregant, uh, if there is sin in a member's life, they need to get to a point of repentance and restoration. The second part about church discipline is what Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that there is a motivation of fear. Listen to what he says in verses 19 and 20, specifically 20 with regard to elders. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. So if an elder sins against somebody and then it is confirmed by two or three witnesses and they are still not repentant, we follow Matthew chapter 18 and it is then brought before the church and the elder is publicly rebuked. And the purpose for this is the repentance of the pastor or elder, but also that the rest of the church might be afraid. Now you might say, man, I thought we were beyond like fear as a motivation Fear as a motivation worked really well for me as a child. 
I, I don't know if you had a father like mine, but it's like, you want to be on dad's good side. You don't, you don't want to cross the line, so you're going to walk the line. Why? Because you knew that discipline would come. Because that, that, that's not a bad motivation. We don't want it to be our only motivation. We don't want it to be the final motivation. But in discipleship, in growing, it is a motivation. I've been a part of, of one instance where as a part of a church and an elder sin to a point where it had to be made public. And talking with people after that meeting, there was a good amount of appropriate and godly fear in people's hearts because they're like, oh my word, if this could happen to one of the pastors or elders, it could happen to me. There's also this fear of like, we are going to take sin seriously in this church as well. Paul is telling Timothy that when an elder is corrected publicly, it is for their repentance, but it's also as an example to the church that we are to take sin seriously. Elders, pastors do not get a pass on sin. They are called to live up to a high standard. In fact, James chapter 3 says not many of you should desire to be teachers. Why? Because you will be judged more harshly. Paul then, after verse 20, beginning in verse 21, begins to talk about what it looks like to appoint elders. That if this is an important role that deserves honor but also should be approached uh, with care, how do we appoint people to this position of elders? And he talks about this beginning in verse 21. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice and doing nothing out of favoritism. You might say elect angels. What's that about? Uh, elect angels are the angels that serve God and are not demons. All right. Uh, demons are fallen angels. So that's what he's talking about. The angels that, that are remain faithful to God. So you can see how serious he's taking this. I charge you before God, the elect angels, to do nothing without prejudice, to do nothing without favoritism. When elders are appointed in a church, Paul says that we should, ought to do it without favoritism. We do not want to elect simply other yes men to agree with the other elders. And as a church, we need to realize that as we operate in general, it's not just in electing elders, but it's also in our engagement with one another, that we don't show favoritism. The brother of our Lord, James, made this very clear in James chapter 2. He says this, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For as someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, and if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or just sit on the floor and be my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin 
and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. In raising elders up in a church, we do not look for earthly benefit. We do not look for earthly stature, but what we look for is godliness. Is a man a godly man? Is he faithful to Christ? We don't show favoritism, but we also don't show favoritism amongst one another. We don't look at social standing and what can this person add to our benefit, but we approach one another in Christ, loving and welcoming all people equally. Paul warns Timothy not to show favoritism, but he also talks about not being too quick to make people an elder. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Don't be too quick to appoint or to lay hands on anyone as an elder. And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. What is he saying here? He's saying that when it comes to elders, you want to elect them slowly. You want to see them. You want to see them live out their life. You want to see them how they handle trials and difficult situations. Why? Because oftentimes it takes time to allow people's true heart to be exposed. Listen to how Paul closes out this section in verse 24. He says, Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. When we are looking at a man to serve as an elder or pastor in our church, we do want to watch their lives closely. We want to see how they handle trial. We want to see how they engage with other people. We want to see their faithfulness. Why? Because we want to make sure they are worthy of the honor that's about to be placed on them. Whenever we bring someone up to the office of an elder too quickly, and it turns out that they have these secret sins and they are corrupt, Paul describes that as us sharing in their sin. It brings disgrace upon the church of Christ when an elder falls. And every time we turn on the news and every time we see that, that article on social media describing how another pastor has fallen into sin, it harms the reputation of Christ. And so Paul is saying, approach laying the hands on an elder, approach appointing an elder very cautiously. And the final warning he gives to Timothy is that elders are to strive to keep themselves pure. He says this at the end of verse 22, keep yourself pure. Elders need to strive at remaining pure. But isn't this true of all of us as well? We all need to strive to keep pure in the faith. Here's a question for you. What sin are you currently trying to kill in your life? We all have sin. We all have shortcomings. We all have temptations. But specifically, as you look at your life, as you look at what you're going through, what sin are you trying to kill? And if you can't answer that question, my next question is, why not? Because purity and holiness isn't just going to come. It's something that we have to work at, something we have to strive for. You're not going to wake up one day and say, well, 
looks like I've arrived at holiness. It looks like I've arrived at purity. If we get there, it's by the grace of God and it's by putting our hand to the plow and getting to work. Evaluate your lives. This is what every elder should do. This is what every Christian should do. Look at your life. Find the sin and start the great and glorious work of killing that sin. How are you going to do it? When we look at Timothy's life, Paul talks about Timothy's pursuit of purity in verses 23. He says, Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So what's going on here? One of the qualifications for an elder that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that they are not addicted to too much wine, that they shouldn't drink too much. They should use moderation. What Timothy did is Timothy said, I'm going to flee drunkenness. And so he became what we call in the old Baptist world as teetotalers. You know that? It's a term from the temperance movement when we did away with alcohol constitutionally, right? Uh, that's been reversed as, as, as we all know, right? So, so Timothy said, I am not going to drink at all. Why? It was a level of protection against himself. I don't want to fall into temptation and alcohol might take me there. And so he swore it off. Listen to what scripture says about too much alcohol. Galatians 5, 19 says, Now the works of the, of the flesh are obvious. And do you know which one of the works of the flesh that's obvious is listed? Is that of drunkenness in verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Romans 13 says, let us walk with decency as the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. Proverbs 23, verse 31 says, don't gaze at wine because it is red and because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and it stings like a viper. When I read scripture, I do not read a prohibition against alcohol. For goodness sake, Jesus turned water into wine. And the leader of the party looked at the wine and he said, this, you just made the good stuff. Like, this is great wine. Wine, I think, can be a blessing from God. However, as humans, we have a way of taking things which were intended for a blessing and we turn it into a curse. And I wanted to mention this specifically because I think in the area that we live in, somewhat rural, next to an army base, there, there's all sorts of opportunities to abuse alcohol. And it might be that you started off just drinking occasionally, but you might have found that now alcohol is just a normal part and rhythm of your day, and it's your refuge that you go to. That's a danger in our lives. And this is what I'd encourage you to do. You, you might think, I, I don't have a problem, I'm fine. Th- this is what I encourage you. I, I want you to come and talk to me after the service. Email me, Stephen at Christ.community, or I can give you my phone number after the service. I want you to talk with me after the service. And what I'd love to do 
And I'd, I'd love to put you in contact with a few members of our church. We have some members of our church who have struggled with alcoholism in the past. And through the grace of God, they've received freedom. But the reason I would like for you to talk with them is because they can describe what alcohol did in their life and the signs of alcoholism in their life. And what I want you to do is I want you to look at the signs and the experience that they had. And I want you to ask yourself the question, am I on the same path? One of the things about alcohol that Paul said in Ephesians chapter five, the church that Paul was writing in Ephesus, he says, do not get drunk and wine. Why? Because it leads to reckless living. It lowers our inhibitions. It takes away rational thought. And we do dumb stuff. Paul said that elders in a church ought to pursue purity. And I don't think Paul is telling Timothy to end his prohibition. He's saying, use it medicinally for your, for your own health. But I do think it is a warning that we do need to strive to be pure. And if alcohol gets in the way of your purity, man, we need, we need to curb. We need to curb it. God has called and God has organized his church to where there are elders who lead and shepherd the church. On one hand, he says that they are to be honored, but on the other hand, he says they are called to live to a high level of holiness. One of the things we talked about when we were reading through the qualifications of an elder and we were looking at the qualifications, one of the things we said is that these are qualifications. These are standards that we all strive to live up to. Let's all strive to live up to purity and to not showing favoritism and holiness. And let's continue to be a church that looks out and cares for one another. Let's stand and pray.